Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 9, What's the Story, Morning Glory? Where we will be looking at chapters 16 and 17 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of processing grief. A few notes before we begin. One. If you hear a whirring noise, it is probably our air conditioning. And that is because we live near Portland, Oregon, where today it will be getting to 113 degrees. If you hear squeaks or grumbles from us or little meows or anything distracting or we seem to be going off into we're paying attention to something else land, it's probably our cat, Sokka, a.k.a. Beans, a.k.a. Beanie, a.k.a. Beanosaurus. I don't know where that came from, but whatever. And we thought he'd be asleep because he was asleep. And then we went to go get the recording rig. And now he is no longer asleep. This little creature has not been asleep most of today. But like I said, 113 degrees the room we normally record in is a little toasty. So we're not there. As usual, of course, we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. And then after that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Then we'll have a recommended thing of the week, and finally we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, though, let's get a few disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though naturally, if either one of those entities would like to work with us, we wouldn't say no. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume some familiarity with the source text, so... There's going to be spoilers ahead for Name of the Wind, Wise Man's Fear, and maybe also some of those ancillary books like The Lightning Tree or The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Finally, as a word to our community, be kind to yourselves, to one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. With that, it's time for us to do 45-second recap. I'm on the hook for this one. I hope you got a timer ready. I actually do this time. However, before we do this, I would like to address the fact that last week we said we were going to be reading chapters 16 through 18, and it turns out we read those and then decided that chapter 18 just didn't fit with this episode. So, 16 and 17. All right, so I am ready now to time you recapping two very short chapters. You think you can do it in 45 seconds? I think so. I think so, too. There's no point in teasing you about cherries this time. Please don't. Alrighty, righty. You think you're ready? Yeah, I think so. In three, two, one, go. Kvothe wallows in sadness over Denna and Ambrose. He's consumed by badness, and it makes him morose. 
To console his grief, Quoth dives into the archives in pursuit of Chandrian beliefs to explain their unnatural lives. Back in the framing device, the regulars tromp in to memorialize Shep twice before their journeys begin. They eulogize his bravery in a dangerous time and the implications unsavory of their own lack of spine. Coach shares a generous dram as a parting gift, appreciated especially by Graham, and their spirits will lift. 27.36 seconds. No cherries for me this time. No cherries for you. Though, if there had been, I'd be a little bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah, it'd be pretty sad. Although, I found sometimes these short sections can be really packed with material if you're not careful. And that can be pretty dangerous. They make you overconfident. What are you talking about? That's never happened before. I have never run into that problem. And neither have you. <laughs> so, the theme that we chose for this week is processing grief. And we see two forms of that. In the main story, we've got Quoth dealing with grief overseeing Denna with Ambrose. And it's a very adolescent style of grief. But it's no less real for having almost a childish quality to it. And it's no less real to Quoth because in some ways his world has shattered. At the same time, it's an expression of how naive Quoth is when it comes to Denna at this stage in his life. He has an intellectual understanding of how she survives. And given the population of Imre and the people around there, sooner or later, the question is, when will she end up with Ambrose? Not if, but when. He is one of the richest people in town, and naturally, they will end up together at one point or another. I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet. Now, we also know that Ambrose generally treats his romantic partners pretty poorly. I'm not even sure I would call them romantic partners. I think I would just call them sexual partners. Not that there's anything inherently bad about not wanting romance or not having a romantic attraction to another person, but I feel a little like there is a lack of perceiving his partners as people. From what we understand about Ambrose, he generally does not regard anyone else as people. Right. I mean, I understand why you would say romantic partner. I just don't feel like that's necessarily an accurate description. That's fair. I don't think it's anything worth getting hung up over. Either way, he treats people that he is with badly across the board. And again, there's nothing wrong in my brain about paying for someone to be your companion. That's not inherently a bad thing to me. Just Ambrose is an abusive deck. Exactly. And we knew that it would happen sooner or later. And I kind of get the sense that Quoth's grief here is not just jealousy, though there is part of that. There is also the sense that she is with someone who is going to be extremely harmful to her. There's not only just that she's with someone who will be extremely harmful to her. Ambrose has been extremely harmful to Quoth. Now, Quoth has also been extremely harmful to Ambrose, but he makes a distinction because it's himself and he is viewing himself in a more positive light than he will allow himself to view Ambrose, ever. You know, I also wonder 
how much he has actually talked about how Ambrose has treated him to Denna. Right. I mean, their conversations seem to be very light in substance. Yeah, there's a whole lot of talk about nothing. But not a whole lot of talk about something. Now, just to kind of quick gloss over what the other chapter is, it is Coat and Bast and Chronicler sitting in the bar, both telling his story and then kind of pulling his head up and saying, we need to take a break. And then Old Cobb shows up, apparently summoned by Graham, who has also summoned some of the other people who were at the Waystone the previous night so that they can do a bit of a wake for Shep. That one is more conventionally processing grief. I think we can go into a little more specifics now. Yeah. The chapters are short. There's not a whole lot. We might actually get a podcast out that's less than an hour long. Who knows? Hope springs eternal. Anyway, the first chapter that we are addressing, Unspoken Fear, it's only a page and a half. But I think that there's a lot there. He says specifically that he kind of tailspinned. Tailspun? Yeah. Into a dark mood. And then he asks, presumably rhetorically, was Ambrose doing this purely out of spite? I would like to point something out. Quoth is not the protagonist in Ambrose's story. And I'm kind of questioning whether or not he's even risen to the level of being an antagonist in Ambrose's story. Or if he's a flea. Yeah, I kind of feel like he's giving Ambrose a little more credit than he deserves here. In the sense that he is thinking that Ambrose knows way more about Quoth's life than he would have any reason to. Yeah, there's a bit of expected mind reading in this. Ambrose probably has no idea that Kvothe has ever even laid eyes on Denna. How would he unless he's stalking Kvothe? To hear Kvothe say it? Unreliable narrator? Maybe Ambrose is still obsessed enough to tail Kvothe or pay people to tail Kvothe or whatever, but I mean, honestly, I just don't think that he cares about it. In Quoth's mind, both he and Ambrose live in one another's head rent-free. But I think for Ambrose, it's like having a spider somewhere in the house. If I don't see it, I don't care. I kind of get the feeling that Ambrose is used to being able to use his wealth and privilege to sweep aside just about any adversary that he encounters. And Quoth is someone he's been able to keep at bay pretty well. And as much as Quoth is really gunning to be the arch nemesis for Ambrose, like you get the sense that he is really trying. There are two people that Quoth is pretty much pursuing through this whole story. And one of them is Denna and one of them is Ambrose. And I think Ambrose is just like, could you just like gum off shoe, please? Thanks. Anyway, that was just what popped into my head right at the very beginning of this chapter. 
Then we get a little bit of wording that is distinctly these books, that is distinctly Patrick Rothfuss writing. Books are a poor substitute for female companionship, but they are easier to find. That is very much this book. That is very much Quoth. That is very much Patrick Rothfuss's writing from whenever 10 years ago this was published. And yeah. Essentially, Quoth is thrown for such a loop by seeing his adversary and his love interest get together. At least that's what his view of this is, because he hasn't asked what is actually going on. So if I sound scattered, it's because I'm trying to keep the cat from eating our recording rig. Sorry, guys. So he goes and he hides himself, buries himself amongst the books with the ostensible goal of finding out more about the Chandrian. I think he's burying himself in work to try to not focus on the thing that is eating his brain alive. And sometimes we have to do that. I have been known to need to punch pixels in a video game when overwhelmingness of life is overwhelming. This is something that I fall into as well. I generally like to think I'm pretty good at my job. And so if I'm dealing with something where I'm especially powerless, I like to go and throw myself into something I know I'm good at. And in this case, Quoth knows that he's good at navigating the library. It's a fun puzzle for him. It's something he takes pleasure in. And it's also something that moves him towards this other overriding goal that he has. Lest we forget that the big bad of the series is the Chandrian and not Ambrose. So naturally, yeah, he's going to spend his spare time doing research on the Chandrian, such as it is. And he doesn't have a whole lot of luck. His only success is finding a reference in a quaint compendium of Fulka belief, which is less about finding the historical roots of a given belief so much as it is an exercise in comparative mythologies. With a lot of weird spelling. Not just medievalish. That's all. Ish. I mean, anytime you see all of that stuff, it's because there was no formal spelling for a long time. And so people just kind of sounded it out, even people who were literary folk. So they would make the best sound they could with it, and that would be it. And when it comes to the Chandrian, pretty much all he can get is that people go out of their way to not speak of them. <laughs> In this book, there are four chapters about demons, three chapters about fairies, one of which was entirely devoted to the Tales of Florian. We will get there. And as I said on Twitter earlier, when someone was talking about the wise man's fear, the eye rolling is coming and it will be audible. Anyway, there were pages on the shambleman, Renlings, and the trow. Just a little like the drow, I wonder. Anyway, the author recorded songs about the gray ladies and the White Riders. Now, I'd like to know who the author actually is, but we don't get that information because Quoth does not care about getting things from actual legit sources. 
Granted, this seems so old that its author is probably dead, but <laughs> ask Lauren. Although Lauren has previously admonished him for looking after certain things when he has specifically requested information on the Chandrian. At the beginning of his schooling, he's been there for a while. You know, if I were Lauren and I wanted to force Foth to come talk to me, I'd cut off his access to the archives. I mean, that's one way to do it. Yeah, you do the scream test. It didn't work. I'm going to also go out on a limb here and suggest that maybe Lauren doesn't actually want to talk to Kvothe. Well, not anymore. I mean, Kvothe has proven that he will not ask for help. And that's the generous read that I have on that. Like, ask people to... Ah, just... Ah. The smart thing for Kvothe to do would be to ask for help. What I am suggesting is that Master Lauren is not interested in helping Kvothe. He might have been? Master Lauren's chief interest is in protecting the archives. He cares more about the archives than he does about any single student at the university, or in fact the student body at large. I get the feeling that Master Lauren would be happiest if there weren't any students dealing with the archives at all, so he could actually put things in order, and then make sure that everything is safe. What I'm saying is that at the beginning of Kvothe's tenure at the university, Lauren actually opened a door that Kvothe reached in and shut with himself on the wrong side. That's entirely possible. And I think at this point in his academic career, Lauren has no interest in Kvothe whatsoever. Like I said, not anymore. So, having Kvothe with access to the archives and not asking questions, that's kind of ideal. Provided he's putting the books away where he found them. He probably isn't. Anyway, moving on. So, at the conclusion of this frustrating and profitless area of inquiry that Kvothe has thrown himself into, Cote, the narrator, spies Cobb coming down the road and we have a set of stage directions that he gives to Chronicler and Bast. Okay. However, I just want to point out that there really isn't a whole ton of things that were talked about. Like, the Chandrian really have a, you know, I want to tell you more about them, but there's really nothing to tell because absolutely no one will tell me anything about them. I do love how inspecific it is. There are between one and many of them. <laughs> Likely seven given their name. There are some signs. Nobody can really agree on what all of them are. These are some common ones. The name Chandrian is spelled differently, so it's Chandrian, which made me, because I've previously only listened to the books, go and look up how Shayan is spelled. And it's not the same. And that made me upset because I was like, that might be a connection. Nope. Nope, just an archaic spelling. Probably. One of many archaic spellings in this whole thing. Anyway, sorry to interrupt your uh, description of the stage directions, but go ahead. The stage directions actually do amuse me because these serve as a callback to Kvothe's prior history as an actor. So Chronicler is to be bored waiting for work, which is why his writing equipment is out. He wishes he weren't stuck without a horse in this nowhere town, but he is, and he's going to make the best of it. Bast is playing to his strengths, 
drinking with the only customer because he's a shiftless layabout. Nobody would ever dream of asking for help in the fields, and naturally, he is also bored. Coat is too busy to be bored, so he's bustling about, tending to the hundred small tasks that keep the inn running smoothly, and Bass should probably start telling the story about the three priests and the miller's daughter if he can't keep a straight face. I do enjoy that. So, Cobb comes in and grouses a bit about the errands that he's running, and then Coat offers him some fresh-pressed cider, which is just enough to stop the grumbles. So when you talk about errands, this is a farming town. This is a harvesting town. This is a working town. There is no space in this life that Old Cobb lives for recreation other than the occasional hop down to the pub for a drink with your buddies. And then you're kind of just stealing that time from your family. Though the buddies are probably close to family anyway. So an important bit of information is that the little Owens boy was sent by Graham to fetch Cobb. Cobb is grumbling right now because he ought to be doing a different task. So then we have our regulars. So that's Graham, Jake, Carter, and Aaron who all show up. They're here to have a drink in Shep's honor because they know that Aaron and Carter are off to Baden to get a new horse and or maybe join the army and will therefore miss the formal funeral for their dear friend. You know, I, I really love how they describe this whole experience here. What happens in church tonight is just a bunch of priestly speechifying. We know how to say goodbye better than that. And it sort of speaks to the fact that while a formal memorial service can mean a lot to some people, it's no substitute for that sort of informal gathering that happens amongst people who love someone. It's important to note Aaron's expression went stricken when he was called out for missing the formal funeral. But Cobb is wise enough to know Mutton goes to market. Shep knew that. He wouldn't think one jot less of you for doing what needs doing. Everyone processes grief in a different way in the way that makes sense to them. Some people cannot face it all at one time. And some people look at what needs doing and pour themselves into that. I also noticed that with Aaron in particular, the thing that seems to be consuming him is feeling like an outsider in the town. He's always known as the Rannish boy. Everyone's saying, I don't know how they do it in Rannish, but here, and he hears that a lot. I think missing the formal funeral is something that makes him feel even more like an outsider. I noticed that after he says his little speech about Shep, he doesn't know if he's done it right. He doesn't know if his words were good enough. He feels like he's somehow let everybody down because he's that weird outsider kid. I suspect that may also be why he's considering joining the army. He is not feeling like he has a place in town. Especially in a town that's so tiny. Small towns can be real insular. So they share their toasts. Graham gives the first. He talks about a story of when he and Shep were kids and they had gone off hunting together and Graham had broken his leg and had instructed Shep to run off for help, but Shep wouldn't leave him and so fashioned a crude sled 
to drag his friend back to town to get treatment. He wouldn't abandon his friend, no matter what. You know, that's a really illustrative bit about Shep's character. And we can see why Graham loved him. Then Jake gives our second one, where we find out that Shep introduced Jake to his wife. And Jake feels guilty that he never properly thanked him for it. I certainly know that feeling. I have a friend who is the reason I know you. I've thanked him before about that. But it's a true thing. It's a little gentle thing when someone you love introduces you to someone else that you love. Carter gives our third, who says when he was sick with the croup, Shep came out to visit him every day, even when no one else would visit him. And he even brought him some homemade soup from his wife. You know, that element of care for the sick, for the injured, that seems like that's a recurring theme for Shep. And then we've got Aaron, our little outsider kid, who's not very little. <laughs> He's actually kind of big. But he says, Shep was nice to me when I first came here. He would tell me jokes, and once I ruined a wagon couple that he'd brought in for me to fix, and he never told Master Caleb. I really liked him. You know, that element of someone who is quick to welcome an outsider, who is quick to make them an insider, those people are true gems. And I think we, should, we could all <laughs> hope to be like that. And then we have Cobbs. Cobbs says, he was braver than all of us. He was the first to stick a knife to that fella, the skin dancer, last night. If the bastard had been any way normal, that would have been the end of it. But it wasn't the case. These ain't good days to be a brave man. But he was brave all the same. I wish I'd been brave and dead instead, and him home right now kissing his young wife. You know, that willingness to step forward and take a risk to save someone else, especially when you have as much to lose as Shep did. Shep was relatively young. You know, he was just starting his family. Had things broken differently, he could have been home with that family. And we can see that Cobb, I think, feels a little bit of guilt, even as he recognizes that maybe that was foolish in retrospect. Maybe it would have been enough to give Shep life had he been the one to take the risk. Because as far as Cobb is concerned, he has a lot less to lose. And after this, again, we see more of Aaron feeling insecure about his place in the village, about whether he's doing this right, whether he's properly honoring this friend of his. And this is where I think Graham is one of my favorite people in town, the woodworker who comes forward and says, you did just fine. There's no wrong thing to say. So long as it's true, <laughs> it's, it's good. The things that you miss about people aren't always the obvious things. You know, it's not always the things that are these grand gestures. You know, like, Aaron doesn't have this story of Shep's heroism saving him from a broken leg or anything like that. His is just, he was nice to me when nobody else was. When Aaron didn't feel like he was worthy of it. Treating him with grace and thoughtfulness and humor bringing him in. But that's just as valuable as any of these other stories. That's how Shep touched Aaron's life. I can understand why maybe Aaron feels a little disjointed now, out of sorts, 
how could you not? And I think Aaron is kind of a shadow protagonist of sorts. He has the makings of someone who could go on to become another hero from an unlikely background. He's the outsider. He's grappling with self-doubt and looking to start his own story. We move on to Coat, Quoth, whatever, almost intruding upon this insular grief, this shared little bubble that these men are in. And he even says, I didn't know him as well as you. Not enough for the first toast, but maybe enough for the second. And he offers what he can. They've all been taking a drink in Shep's honor. He offers to share a tumble of whiskey with each of the regulars on Shep's account. And just to lighten the mood a little bit, although it's not light in the book, it is light right now. Graham asks what this toast is going to be then. To the end of a pisser of a year. Uh, yeah. So, we are lucky enough to be in the United States where there is access to the vaccine for COVID-19. We have been vaccinated since we could be. We have been fully vaccinated since the moment we could be. It feels not quite back to a year and a half ago, 15 months ago, whatever it has been since we felt safe enough being outdoors and around people. But this has really been kind of a pisser of a year. And I'm sure that we're not the only people that have gone through that and feel that. In fact, I know we're not. Everything feels like it got put on hold. And I definitely like to rethink what normal is going forward and be more intentional. I'm not sure that as a whole, people are going to have a drastic change in what their normal is. But I think individually, we might. I do hope that those that acquired new anxiety problems are able to find a way to handle them constructively and heal from them. I mean... If you didn't have social anxiety before, congratulations, you do now. More than likely. So, Aaron offers up perhaps to the king as a toast topic, to which Quoth gives a firm no. And instead, to old friends who deserved better than they got. I don't know that this is strictly about Shep. I don't think it is. I have a feeling that the... Both Sim and Will triad is going to get broken up in a bad way. And then Old Cobb resolves to get all of them back together when Carter and Aaron return from Baden for another round. Because they do have chores to do and errands to run right now. Again, it's that practicality of living in a small farming community during the harvest. So after everyone leaves, we're left with just Bast and Chronicler and Quoth again. And Bast shares some of his own memories of Shep, and he speaks rather admiringly of him, which is unusual for Bast. Bast very rarely speaks admiringly of anyone. That's because he usually has an air of impishness and flippancy. Yeah, and it's unusual to see him expressing a sincere fondness for another human being. 
you say for another human being. Lest you forget, Bast is not one. Let me put it this way. Bast has respect for one single human being, and that is Quoth. Does he, though? In his own way. I think there's some real affection there and admiration. From a certain point of view? Perhaps. He says that he admired Shep's bravery, and Quoth says, well, I don't admire it. And this is the distinction of bravery without knowledge or wisdom. It was Shep's bravery that got him killed. We don't know what would have happened had Shep not taken a run at the skin dancer. There's a chance he would have died, there's a chance he wouldn't have, but we know that really it was Bast and Aaron who did the actual work that saved everyone. We don't know if his intervention would have helped at all. Now, given the information that Shep had at the time, there's no reason why he would have suspected that he was dealing with this weird undead fey creature. Why would he suspect that at all? He made the decision that seemed right based on the information available at hand, but it got him killed. Meanwhile, Quoth wishes that he had had Shep's bravery to combine with his knowledge, and maybe in that case, Shep would be home kissing his young wife instead. Bast, though, has an unwaveringly certain knowledge in his head that Quoth would have saved them all. He just knows it in his soul. Which, knowing Bast, knowing how heavy-handedly he is trying to manipulate Quoth, he's just trying to get something to unblock his Reshi. And this one had deadly consequences. I think that may be why Bast is more willing to admit admiration for Shep. It's possible. He doesn't live in a world of our own black and white morality. No. He operates on red and green morality, let's be real. But he is not without his own complexities. He may not regret the same things, but he does have regret. So with that, I think it's probably time to get into things like the Fernemos and our interesting fact. I believe it's your turn for Fernemos this week? It is... Who'd you pick? I've been thinking about picking Cobb, but you know what? Graham. It's definitely Graham. Graham is the one who instigated the gathering at the Waystone in Shep's honor. He knew that Carter and Aaron were going to be traveling and possibly joining up with the army, and that the crew needed to be there to memorialize their friend. He's also just as kind to Aaron as Shep was. A little bit of gentle chiding without teasing or causing embarrassment. Yeah, I saw that bit where Aaron almost drops the, the glass over and Graham catches it and says, that's why we call it a tumble around here. <laughs> like, it's not saying that you're bad or anything like that, just... This is why we call it that, and that's kind of funny. And then encourages him to do as the rest of them did and place the glass face down on the table. Yeah, it was a gentle moment, and it really 
captures that element of kind good humor. There's a little bit of self-deprecation there. It's that sort of, I only laugh because I've made this mistake. I think also it's really important to recognize that Graham sees how processing grief is important for those of us who remain because it's not really about the person who has passed. Grief can take a lot of different forms. There are some that we might look at and think, well, that's a little bit frivolous and a little bit, come on, couldn't you see this coming? The first chapter that we discussed, both putting just a little too much stock in whether or not Ambrose gives a crap about him. But then there's also the grief that comes with knowing that someone you love that you are used to seeing every day or that you know that you could just call and have a loving little conversation with or you could text or reach out and have just a little connection with is either sick or you maybe had a bad friendship breakup because those are also a thing there is the grief at the end of a romantic relationship there is the grief at the end of a friendship relationship. There is the grief felt at the loss of a pet or at the loss of somebody else's pet sometimes. They're all valid, but processing it and getting an understanding of how it lives in your soul, that's an important step. And Graham sees that his friends who are about to go all off on their own separate routes, their own separate journeys, their own separate ways, how they need to at least spend a quiet moment together. And so even though knowing that Cobb will grouse or that Aaron will feel a little awkward, not quite sure if he belongs or not, he makes sure that they are all together at least this once, at least at this time. And I think that that's really wise especially when you realize that he also doesn't call out the possibility that this won't be able to happen again after Aaron and Carter come back because he's smart enough to know that they might not. I think it's also worth noting here that all of the people in this room are the only ones who truly understand what happened that night. For everyone else no one will truly believe what they saw. As far as everyone else is concerned, they dealt with a brigand who just wandered in and randomly killed Shep. Just a bit of wanton banditry. And that's the extent of it. No one truly understands what they saw that night. Only the people in that room really have that shared understanding and so there's an additional bond that's there between the people who survived also an additional bond from the guilt that one of their members did not survive agreed they all need time to process that and sometimes a burden shared is a burden lifted and if they are sharing it they are able to move forward we all lift together exactly I think you picked the right person. Thank you. So with that, let's talk about our interesting fact. We're going to lighten things up here a little bit. As we record this episode, we find ourselves in the midst of one of the hottest summers on record in the Pacific Northwest, 
So I'm going to be talking about one of the greatest summertime foods to help you beat the heat ever. I'm talking watermelon today. All right. Up until recently, botanists believed that the earliest domesticated watermelons were developed in South Africa. However, a team of botanical researchers in Germany and the United States examining genetic sequences of that delightfully refreshing summer treat have found evidence that suggests that the earliest domestic watermelons actually originated from a melon native to Sudan called the Cordofan. The team's research, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, follows up on years of work on the biogeography of the modern genus Citrillus. As lead author Suzanne Renner, who is a botanist at the University of Munich, put it, Everybody thought that there were only four wild species, and that the sweet watermelon that we eat today came from South Africa. But in 2015, her then-grad student, Guillaume Chomiki, found through DNA sequencing of different specimens across Africa that the suspected watermelon ancestor in the South was just a distant relation. From there, one thing led to another, Renner said, and the researchers landed on the Cordofan melon as the most likely genetic origin of the modern watermelon. So watermelons and their archaic predecessors aren't the sort of things that tend to fossilize, which has further obscured the fruit's true origins. Seeds sometimes fossilize, which can be useful for probing ancient DNA, but the oldest DNA in this paper comes from 270-year-old watermelon leaves that were preserved in a herbarium. The team reared samples of all the watermelon species and grew them to maturity in a greenhouse in Munich and Ithaca. They then genetically sequenced those samples and compared them with the DNA extracted from a wild fruit in Sudan, which was the Cordofan. They found about 16,000 genetic structural variants between the two plants and mapped those differences to specific traits of each fruit. They found that the watermelon likely became sweeter as a product of domestication, though it may have lost its bitterness prior to domestication, as the Cordofan fruit isn't bitter either. They closed in on Cordofan as a candidate thanks to some Cold War-era plant breeders who noted the possibility that the Cordofan plant was the progenitor of the modern watermelon, which required some translation as those botanists were speaking in Russian. So the Cordofan is smaller than the cultivated watermelons of today and noticeably lacks the striping and bright red interior of its famous cousin. Based on its range in Northeast Africa, it's plausible that the watermelon development took place in the same region but the team also noted the possibility that the watermelon was domesticated in West Africa and then brought east. So where did that earlier misconception about the watermelon South African origins come from? Well, it turns out it was at the confluence of science and language that is taxonomy. Tracing the watermelon's ancestry to South Africa was the result of a slew of errors. About 150 years after a disciple of taxonomist Carl Linnaeus picked up and named a new variety of watermelon near Cape Town and named it Citrillus linatus, an American botanist merged the find with watermelon, which shared the same name. And then from this moment on, the general idea was that the watermelon came from South Africa. So essentially, one person made the confusion, published it, and it caught on, and it spread throughout the community. That happens more often than I would like to admit. Yep. It's an easy misconception to make. And really what all of this shows is that the things that we take for granted as being modern innovations are oftentimes far older. And it's also interesting to see how wild fruits differ from their domesticated counterparts and what traits we bred for. It's really fascinating stuff to my mind. Me too. Like, the... One that pops into my head the most 
is the bananas and knowing that the banana flavoring that we all have in like artificial flavoring stuff doesn't taste like banana because it tastes like the banana that was previously worldwide most common banana but then it got destroyed by blight and so they changed what species of banana gets propagated throughout the world and it seems like the cavendish banana that we almost universally associate with being a banana now is also going to wind up going through a problem with blight and we're probably going to have a different banana in you know 10 to 20 to 30 to 50 years that everyone associates with banana and it still won't taste like artificial banana it's the peril of monocultures it's great for when you want to mass produce something, but it's a lot more fragile from an ecosystem perspective. So we'll see what happens here in the next uh, 20, 30 years. My recommended thing of the week is something that I think I've talked about previously in just passing. Speaking of this being kind of a pisser of a year, we all have found different things to try to cope, to try to just get through the day to day, to try to bring ourselves a little bit more joy. At least I hope everyone's tried to find something that gives them at least a little bit of joy. And so I don't know how it got populated into my YouTube algorithms, but it did and I'm very happy. And it probably actually came because I watched a video from Animal Wonders Montana about foxes. And so it's like, you like foxes? And I'm like, well, now I do. Because my recommendation this week is what is, yes, a YouTube channel, and yes, also an Instagram account, but is primarily this wonderful thing that I didn't know existed, which is a fox rescue. It's called Save a Fox. The person who founded it is Michaela. She is essentially a D&D druid, maybe a World of Warcraft druid in the flesh. She is an animal whisperer, if an animal whisperer exists. She rescues foxes and mink and I think chinchilla and a number of other exotic pets or things that are typically found in fur farms and gives them a much better home. She uses the YouTube channel and the Instagram account to share this journey with her audience. Also, though, to raise some money so that they can take care of the foxes and all of the rest of the animals in a fulfilling way for the people who work there. But also so that the creatures that essentially have taken over her entire home and her entire life can have a good life. Farming animals for fur is disgusting. It is a terrible practice and I don't care if it feels really, really nice and that you don't want to own a mink in order to be able to feel a mink. You don't need it. There's just so many ethical issues with farming animals for their skin in the condition that those poor animals live in. And if you would like more education about why I am very vehemently opposed to fur farming, watch Save a Fox on YouTube. Some of the videos are going to be amazing little three-week-old Arctic fox pups and will just bring a smile to your face and make you laugh and make you just, ah, they're so cute. 
and some of them will be educational. How to take care of a mink. How to care for the foxes. A tour around the rescue. And some of them will be educational about the conditions that foxes that are farmed go through. Some of them include foxes jumping on a trampoline. And some of them include foxes walking on actual ground for the first time. The other reason that I really, really enjoy them is our cat Sokka, I think, wishes that he lived with Michaela at her fox rescue. Every time I have a video on, especially when Michaela is talking, he is just eyes glued to the television going, but, but my girlfriend, I, I want, I want to live there. I want to live and play with the foxes. I want to play with Finnegan and I want to play with Dixie and I want to play with Vixie and I want to play with Matthias and I want to play with the cats that are there. And I want to play with the mink, even though the mink will probably try to eat me. And I want to try to chase that squirrel. And I want to try to play with the horses and the coyote. And he just seems like he wants to be there. I have heard it said that foxes are just cat software running on dog hardware. So it stands to reason. Yeah. I think he would get on fine there. I think that he would like it better than Lilo would. Oh, most definitely. But it is always funny to me. We definitely do tease him about his girlfriend, Michaela. Also, if you ever wanted just the cutest t-shirts with a fox on it, they have that so that you can help support them. There are little children's books about the foxes in the fox yard. Finnegan and Dixie and Esme. You get to know them. You get to know their personality. You get to be happy and also a little bit sad when one of the foxes is adopted by a person who is actually prepared to take care of a fox. You know, some of the foxes there are pet surrenders. Jagger is a pet surrender because he was being treated like a pet in a state that didn't allow foxes to be pets. Seriously, people. Wild animal. It Exotic pets are not for the masses. And you should not have the hubris to think that, well, they're not allowed in my state, so I'll just keep it a secret. That doesn't... no. 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 It's a bad enough idea to try and keep cats in secret in your apartment. Forget foxes. I mean, we've never done that. Never. Never. No. We didn't adopt a cat six weeks before we moved, and... Tried to pretend that we didn't have a cat. Yeah, that worked out. Mm-mm. Still had to pay the pet deposit. <sighs> Not the end of the world, but it's a lot easier when it's a thing that the state recognizes as a pet as opposed to, you know, a wild animal. That's true. Also, don't keep a fox indoors. Foxes can't be potty trained properly. They will pee on all your stuff. But yes. My real actual recommendation is to watch all of their videos. And I'm not kidding. Watch all of their videos. They will put a smile on your face. And then if you have the means to do so, support them through the Fox Shop. That's a good recommendation. Thank you. So now we come to our seven words. I believe you have seven words from the book. I do. And if we had kept the following chapter in this week's episode... It's a dinner chapter, and there were a lot of seven-word sentences to choose from. But, alas, we did not. So there were like four. 
and not a lot of them are great. I mean, without context, Bass's grin widened. That's a good one. Doesn't make any sense. So that's out. These aren't good times to be brave is kind of depressing. What's this toast going to be then? Again, in context. And the one that I'm choosing is Lord and Lady, that's a lovely tumble. Does it make sense out of context? Not really. Is it kind of sweet? Yeah. We've all had that experience after you taste something truly amazing, where you have the idea of what good is, and then you try something truly great. And then you just kind of melt a little bit. It also makes the good pale in comparison afterward. It does do that. So mine is, take a drink, Sokka would destroy that. So to give you context on all of this, of late, Phoenix and I have been planning for what we want to do when eventually we finally are able to purchase our own home and how we want to decorate and how we want to organize and all of that fun stuff. That's out in the indeterminate future, but we're getting ideas and we're having fun with it. However, one thing I have noticed is that oftentimes Phoenix's favorite response, or I don't know if it's her favorite response, but her most common response to a lot of things that she sees is Sokka would destroy that or Sokka would murder that. There's no way Sokka would let that stay intact. That's terrible. Sokka would destroy that. The cats would destroy that. You know the cats would destroy that. And at one point on a trip through Ikea, I kind of turned it into my own little weird internal drinking game every time she said it. And she was definitely amused when I told her about this. And so then now, instead of just saying the cats would destroy that or Sokka would destroy that, she says, take a drink. Sokka would destroy that. Speaking of things that Sokka would destroy, he is on our recording rig, asleep. He just rolled over and I'm kind of worried about whether or not it's still recording. But since his entire body is covering the recording rig, you know, do I wake him up to move him over? Or do I just trust the system? He looks so peaceful. <laughs> yep. Looks being the operative word. Uh-huh. I mean, I love him. So... For context, a little more about why I keep saying every single piece of furniture that we would possibly consider actually owning would be destroyed by this little black blob that's in front of me. Before the pandemic even, I didn't have a full-time job. I get to be in our living room nearly every day with the cats. Sokka really, really, really likes to go after things that he finds shiny or that make noise or that interest him in the moment. He drives me crazy. And so when we're thinking about things that are going to be furniture pieces for our home, they need to have doors that he cannot open. There are a lot of things that he would either chew on or that he would constantly open. I wonder if he'd be smart enough to figure out how to open one of those magnetized doors that you pop in and pop out. And if he would just keep doing it, there are a lot of reasons that I need my own office. And he is one of them. He's the biggest one of them. And he hooge. And he hooge. But yeah, you were about to play a video game yesterday and you would not have been able to 
process whether or not he was just Oh, that woke him up. <laughs> Knocking the nearly full thing of soda water off of the table next to you. And so, yeah, I made you drink the rest of it before you played Mass Effect. Fair. Because <laughs> I was trying to read this week's stuff. I'm also hypervigilant and wouldn't have been able to finish reading if I was the one that was paying attention to whether or not the cat was trying to knock your soda water off the table. But it's a good seven words. It is. It's cute. It's going to be funny on Instagram once I finally get it up there. I, I have been kind of sporadic in my Instagramming. Sorry. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 18 and 19 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of fishing for information. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend, Shawnee Jang, for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the show, bonus pods, and now, officially, someone has actually signed up so that I have to do art every three months, and it's going to be posters of quotes from the book or sometimes even the quotes from our lives. The first one that is available was put out a couple of days ago. It's something that I actually made at the beginning of this whole journey, and it is a poster of our catchphrase. Here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding. Ding. Beanie. Beanie, I need to get you off of here. <laughs> Thank you for finishing that sentence. Absolutely. <laughs> He's like, mm. Yay, it's still recording. Cool. Well, we thought that the cat was going to be asleep. Hey, stop that. Okay, we do not want a repeat of Dax. I'm not buying a new mic. I know. Chill, little guy. Did he actually nip at it? He did. Oh, you're not allowed to let him do that. <laughs> I stopped him, but... All right, Beans, we are going to try to record something, and you're not allowed to eat the microphone. No, you're not. You're trying to eat Will's microphone, aren't you? Yes, you are. You're trying so very hard. You're like, maybe if I pretend to be cute and sweet for just a little bit longer, he will think that I'm going to fall asleep and then chomp. That's exactly what's going through his head exactly what's going through your head.